Thank you. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And as I've been traveling these last couple of weeks, and every time I go away from here, and I encounter other students, and I encounter other ministries, and I encounter men of God and women of God, wherever that might be, every time I experience that, I, I can't resist the tendency for comparison. And comparison as to what God is doing here. And young men and women, men and women of our faculty and staff, we are in the midst of a great movement of the Spirit of God here on this campus. He, the living God, has chosen each one of you, students, faculty, and staff alike. And this time and this place, I believe, to, to equip you to make a difference, not only in your lifetime, but for all of eternity, in a special, special way. And as I get to meet many of you personally, and so thankful that many are in our home often, coming with Rob and with Todd. My heart is often just filled to overflowing with what God is doing here. And if you could be in our management team prayer meeting on Monday morning, if you could look in on that somehow, if you could look in from 7.30, often we go as long as till 9.30. We often spend half of that time on our knees in prayer. Because we sense as a management team that in the midst of what God is doing here, there is nothing that we can do unless He does it. So we want to begin each week crying out in dependence upon Him. And we try to do that. And God has honored that. And when I had privilege to speak back in the fall, when Russ had asked me to, to cover the things that, that we could clearly point to that only God had done in the first year of the Master's College in that transition year. And I, as I had four pages on a legal pad, written out, one-liners, and in 45 minutes I could only cover one page of that. My heart is burdened that somehow we on the management team and that we are able to share more with you what God is doing so you have a greater appreciation. He's doing it just for you. Young man, young woman, the faculty that God has assembled here, and a great faculty. They are here uniquely equipped and designed by God to match your needs, each one of you. Some may be more gifted as communicators. Others may be more accomplished in terms of knowledge of their subject. Every one of them has a personal interest in you. Every one. That's the only reason they're here. You are the reason that God has brought each one of them here. I want to ask you today to begin pray. Pick out one faculty at least, one faculty person, and begin to pray for that person every day for the rest of this semester. And when you encounter them, come along and give them a word of encouragement. Tell them that you're praying for them. And then God has brought together in exactly the same way, just for you, a tremendous staff and management team. We have all the bases covered with just the right people. God has done that. We didn't do any searches, scarcely, up until now. Now we're having to search across the country for some key positions. But the key positions that need to be filled by this time, they just showed up. Just showed up with perfect credentials and perfect backgrounds. And God has brought them here just for you. Are you beginning to get the picture? The God of the universe, the God who created the planets that go on and on into space that we don't even know where they are, loves you so much, cares so much for you. Not only did he bring you to himself, 
give you physical life, then spiritual life, but then bring you to this place where he is uniquely at work in this time for you. And that staff person that I was talking about a moment ago, I want to ask you each as well to pick one staff or management person and pray for that person daily throughout the rest of this semester. And when you see them, encourage them, take a moment, stop and talk, introduce yourself, and tell them that you're praying for them. God has brought them here only for you, just for you. Isn't that incredible? Just for you, to build into your life. And there may, may be times when maybe you don't see things eye to eye with a particular faculty person or with a staff person. Defer to them. God has equipped them and brought them. There may be times when there could even be difficulty in relationship. Defer to them. They're the ones that God has brought here because of their spiritual maturity and their giftedness just for you. Defer to them. Learn from them. Even when there would be difference, defer to them. And as I've been traveling and again experiencing and comparing and what God is doing here and then focusing back on what he's doing here, about 10 days ago I was at a mission agency board meeting in Detroit and a man had just come from the Philippine Islands and he was talking about how, how imminent the closing of the Philippines is to the gospel. How the communist takeover is beginning to speed up now and there was some bloodshed this week, perhaps you read about it. But he gave an example of something that that occurred about three weeks ago that gives such a vivid example of how God is in control even when it seems that he's not. He told about how a friend of his, a Filipino pastor, had been preaching on a Sunday morning. This is probably three weeks ago yesterday. And in his message he was telling his people that they had to love the communists, that Christ had died for them as well. And that they needed to love them and not to fear them, but to trust in God and to love the communists and allow the love of Jesus Christ to flow through them, even to the communists that were beginning to harass them and were even threatening life in certain situations. And he preached boldly about who Christ is and about the difference he could make even in the lives of the communists. But his main challenge was to his own congregation that they should love those communists as well, even as Christ had loved them and died for them. And at the end of that message, he gave an invitation for folks to come and receive Christ as their Savior. And two men came forward. Two men came forward, and as they approached the altar, the pulpit, they each removed the gun and they laid it on the pulpit. And they looked up at the pastor and they said, We were sent to kill you when you were praying, but God has intervened. That's the kind of a God we have ladies and gentlemen. About 10 years ago, a friend of mine, who incidentally will be here later this week with the uh, international, we're hosting inter an international sports ministers conference this week. When you see, we'll introduce them on Friday in chapel and give them a gift, but they're from every continent and God has brought them here to become acquainted with our sports ministry program. An incredible thing that God is doing. Pray for that. Would you pray that we would be good hosts and, and we would strengthen these brothers from all over the world. They'll just be about 20 altogether. And I hope that many of you could be able to come and sit and observe some of those meetings. I'm going to try to get into each of your boxes a schedule of the meetings that will go on from Thursday through Saturday evening and you'll be able to come and be an observer in some of those, I would hope. But as, as I was considering, thinking about something that happened here recently, it all began about 10 years ago when a friend of mine led a, led a, a man to Christ in Miami, Florida. I didn't, of course, know anything about this until last summer when this same friend uh, 
Now the, the man that he had lived, led to Christ lives in Santa Monica, and he's a businessman now in Southern California, and a very successful businessman. And so this mutual friend told us last summer that we should get together. So we got together, and this man came out and walked our campus and started to kind of get excited about what God is doing here. And he, he's the man that the Lord then used to lead us to one of the top planning firms in the world that is, that is planning for our new campus, planning for new buildings back over the hill. Uh, a planner that would be described as the best that money can buy, and yet God has provided this planner at less money than, than a mediocre one. He wants to do it at cost and not make a penny on that. However, coming back, that same friend then, a few weeks ago, some of you may have been given opportunity even to pray when we began to consider how could we change our entrance. We, we, were, we, were, we were greatly concerned with the danger of the traffic back and forth right out here and the, and the walking and the cars together. It's a tremendous danger. And so now we've closed that exit off and we're trying to figure out a way that we could even create close the entrance there and move it down perhaps in where those that beautiful grove of oaks are. Somewhere we've got engineers working on that to get that done perhaps later this year. But then we began to say, well, if we came in there, then maybe there's a way we could come out. There's this sort of dirt street right up at the end, over towards where Placerita Baptist Church is. You know that dirt street runs up there? And so we said, well, gee, that'd be wonderful. We could, we could, we could just run the street in front of, um, between the dorms and then the parking lot down here and tie that, and that could be our exit. But I had noticed a few, uh, maybe a year ago, that we don't own that. There's a 40, that 40 foot dirt street we don't own. And so I asked Miss Ishi to check on that, and, and she got the map out, and she noticed, and she noticed that the address, the address for the com company that owns that's a private street, that owns that street, is the same address of this businessman that my friend led to Christ in Miami ten years ago. Can you believe that? And so I called him on the phone, and I said, "Do you have another company?" And I gave him the name of the other company at your address in Santa Monica. And he said, yeah, he said, he's a believer now, remember, okay? He said, isn't that a coincidence? <laughs> and so while I was in Detroit last week, Miss Ishii called me. She couldn't wait to call, and she called and she said, well, I'd send him a letter. He said, send me a letter with a sketch on that, and well, I'll look into it and see what we can do. And so Miss Ishii called me in Detroit because she couldn't wait, and she read me this note that had come back. And that company has decided to give us that street, okay? I mean, if, we're, if it was somebody, you know, who didn't love Christ, that'd be a perfect opportunity to hold us up and say, boy, they need that. Sock it to them. Charge them a million dollars for that, right? But our God, incredible, began 10 years ago in Miami, Florida, when, when, when the, my friend led this man to Christ. That is the way God has been working day after day after day since I've been here. I'm, I'm sure long before that, back in the history of this school, back to the beginning. And yet within your life and in my life, how often do we really trust Him? How often do we really trust Him? At what level are you trusting God today? At what level are you trusting God or are you trusting in relationships? Are you trusting, where is your security base today? Where is your reference point? Where is your source of joy and happiness today? Is it in a boyfriend or in a girlfriend and how that relationship is going? Is it in, it's already a little early in the semester, but perhaps it's to a degree in an optimistic perspective of how you're going to do better in school this, this semester. You didn't do so well last semester, but this semester you've dug in and you're really going to do it. So you're already happy because you're going to do well. 
And that's okay to be confident that way. To have a positive outlook, to always have a positive perspective. Or maybe today, you've got a little money in the bank because you worked over the Christmas break. And so there's some security there as well. Maybe you did really well, you had a 4.0 last semester, and so your sense of need and dependence upon God isn't nearly as great as when you had a 2.0 a year ago. Right? Isn't that the truth? It really is. It really is. What's your reference point today? Turn with me to Psalm 62, please. Psalm 62. Those who study the experts generally agree that David probably wrote this psalm when he was in the great midst of personal calamity. Let me review for you a moment his personal situation, what it probably was when the Spirit of God used him to write this psalm. You'll recall how it's recorded in 2 Samuel, at a point in David's life when when one of his sons, Amnon, raped one of his daughter, Tamar. I mean, for a beginning, okay? This is the beginning of his problem. But stay with it. Then Absalom, another son, so upset by this, decided that he had to kill Amnon, and he did that. So put yourself in the, in the, in the position of the father now, okay? Father. One son has raped my daughter. Another son has killed that son in vengeance for that. The son who did the murdering then decided to get an appetite politically, decided that there isn't any reason in the world why he shouldn't become king. And so he began to campaign and he did it well. And it is recorded in the word of God that he stole the heart of Israel from his father. He diverted and caused his father's most loyal servants and advisors to be disloyal to him and to place their loyalty in him. But all of that wasn't enough. He publicly humiliated his father. And that wasn't enough. He decided that he couldn't wait. He would kill him. And the news came to the palace and David and his household servants had to flee. And at that point, it is generally agreed that David wrote Psalm 62. I mean, I can, I have never heard of any story of a family in worse condition than this particular situation. And so David is running from his son for his life, and he's hiding, and he writes these words. And I'm using the NIV. My soul finds rest in God alone. Exclusive trust. Exclusive trust. Rest in God alone. Now consider, that's the most logical thing in the world. Where did he get his soul? Where did you get your soul? God has given us our soul. God has promised that he will preserve our soul through this lifetime. And he has a place for our soul for all of eternity. The most logical thing in the world to be able to say that. My soul finds rest in God alone. And yet this morning, how many of us here this morning are presently experiencing that contentment, that rest of our soul, 
because of our exclusive trust on Him. How many? No hands. No hands. Don't put your hand up. I don't think there'd be many to put their hand up. Because we get diverted in ourself and we trust in everything but Him. He continues. My salvation comes from him. And he's speaking here, I believe, of every kind of salvation. He's speaking of his physical needs. He's speaking of um, his physical being spared from being killed. He's saying my deliverance comes from him. There's no problem I'm going to encounter that he isn't going to save me from. That's what he's saying. This life for the one to come. Verse 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Verse 1, he refers, he has an exclusive trust. Write these down. They will all be E's. Exclusive trust. Verse 2, exclusive protection. A cover. God has a cover over you and over me, doesn't he? If you have by faith received Christ as your Savior and Lord, there is an exclusive protection. No one can ever take you out of his hand. He alone is my rock and my salvation. Oh, things can happen to us in this lifetime. Adversity will come, but nothing that he is not allowing. And you know what else? The Bible teaches that that which he allows is that which is best. Even when it's hard to go through. And then I love the next part, verse 3, because in verses 3 and 4, he's, he's saying here that while I'm exclusively trusting in God... And while he is my exclusive protection, and I acknowledge that, emotionally, I still don't feel good. I mean, if you're in the midst of an incredible mess, you can be trusting in God and still not feeling good about it. The peace may not always be there. That peace that passes understanding. There can be good reasons. Emotionally, we can't control our emotions. They're very tricky and they're very... We should be very careful about our emotions. And he says, how long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. His experience was not a good one. He felt rotten and he felt free to say that to God. Boy, this is really a rough time I'm going through here. When's it going to stop, God? He was trusting, but at the same time, he could say that. I don't enjoy it. I know it's going to be okay, but I don't enjoy it. And then in verse 5, he says, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. Even as he would express his emotional distraughtness at the same time his mind and his heart immediately refocusing on God, on God and his expectation was Godward exclusively exclusive expectation exclusive expectation he alone is my rock and my salvation he is my fortress I will not be shaken he comes back again to the exclusive protection he alone is my rock. And David had would have considered a rock as something you either hide behind or you stand on. He alone was his rock. Who is your rock today? 
Who are you standing on? Who are you hiding? What is the cover for your life? He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Verse 8, I really love. And as we come to verse 8, I'm going to ask you to each one consider what is going on in your life today. Verse 8 says, trust in him at all times, O people. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever doubts you have, whatever troubles you have, whatever heartaches you have, whatever, 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 God knows it all. He knows every thought. He knows every concern. He knows every worry. Better than that, he knows what's going to happen tomorrow, tonight. He knows who's going to meet today. He knows how all that's going to fit. And look what he asks you to do. Pour out your hearts to him. For God is our refuge. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been at the end of your rope? Ever been at the end of it spiritually and emotionally? And just gone and knelt by your bed and just said, God, I'm not getting up from here until you minister to my soul. Have you ever done that? There's some of you today that need to do that today. You need to do that today. You're kidding yourself. There are things you're trying to deal with in your life and you're trying to resolve those yourself and you're really not giving them over to the Lord. You're not allowing Him to carry that. You're not trusting Him. Your trust is not exclusively in Him. And you're being robbed of blessing. It's, it's causing your life to shrink like a flower that's fading, like grass that's withering. That's how you are today. In a crowd this size, there have to be many beginning a week, even the second week of school with great trouble and difficulty. Maybe family problems back home. Maybe a situation with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe you don't know how you're going to pay your bill. Maybe there's illness, great illness, with family or loved one. And you're greatly troubled today, and yet you carry that. God doesn't want you to carry that. He wants to carry it for you. He wants to lift it from you. Even as you would, we would end this time in a few minutes, I want to encourage you, if you're carrying that kind of burden today, you go right from this place, right to your dorm, and you shut your dorm room, and you shut your door. And if, you're, and if you are a commuting student, and you, have, you go to your car, or come to my office, I'll give it to you. And you just get on your knees, and you pour your heart out to God. You do that? Today. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. God wants you to move steadfastly. Confident in Him. The next part really deals incredibly effectively with with the lies that um, we tend to have confidence in. Here he excludes men from trust. Exclude men from trust. Have no confidence in the flesh. Exclude men from trust. He says in verse nine, "Lowborn men are but a breath, but a breath." Does that mean a breath? Just a breath, just a vapor, vanity, a soap bubble, just a breath. Every man or woman alive is only one breath away from their last breath, potentially. Every man or woman alive is only one heartbeat, potentially, away from their last heartbeat. He teaches with this so clearly, don't trust in men. 
And then he says, the highborn are but a lie. The highborn men, the ones, the ones that are in authority, the ones that have power. I believe what he's saying is here is they're a lie because we have a tendency to put more trust in highborn men. We put more trust in, in men that have stature. They may have political stature. They may have a fortune. They may, they may have power in an organization. We have a tendency to put more trust in men that are highborn. But they are just a breath away from death as well. They're just a heartbeat away from their last one, same as the lowborn men. And so they are alive because we have a tendency to trust in them in an even greater way. He says if they're weighed on a balance, they are nothing. If you put even that highborn man on the balance, it doesn't go down, it goes up. Put it on there with air, put a little air on, he's nothing. In the eyes of God, he's nothing. And yet we have a tendency to trust in that which in the eyes of God or compared to him is nothing. Together they are only a breath. And then he says in verse 10, do not trust in extortion. So in verses, in verse 9 he says, exclude men from trust. And in verse 10 he says, exclude trust in riches. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. He's saying no matter how your riches increase. Certainly if you accumulate illegally, if you steal, don't trust in that. But he's also saying no matter how you increase in riches, don't trust in riches. Let me ask a question. How many of you have a checking account? Boy, that's quite a lot. Okay. How many of you feel a little more complete a little more content when you've got some money in that checking account. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. How many of you pray a little more when there's no money in that checking account? Well, you know exactly what he's talking about, don't you? Exactly. Why is that? Did the God who put the money in the checking account before it got empty, could he put some more in? What is the source of your trust? What is the basis of your trust? Is the basis of your trust the job that someone promised that you're going to have next week? Or is it the God behind that who's raised up those people to allow that to occur? Where is your trust? Is your trust in praying for a loved one who is ill in the physician? That is the best that money could buy, or it is your trust in the God of the universe who has seen fit that that physician could be available to your loved one. Where is your basis of trust? And then I love what he says as he concludes this. And I'm not sure what it means, but I love it anyway. He says, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. Now he could be saying, he could be saying, boy, you know, when, when I listen to men, I kind of just half listen. And I kind of hear half what they're saying. But when I listen to God, I want to hear it, not only, I want to hear it twice instead of half. Could be saying that. Or he could be saying, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. He could be saying, he could be saying simply this. God has spoken it, I've heard it, and I've heard it experientially. I've seen him work in my life. 
I see it. Have you seen Him work in your life? How many people have never experienced God working in your life? I don't think there are any hands. Is He working in your life just the same today as He was when you're remembering a special event, special situation? Yes. Yes, He is. He is alive and working in your life in an incredible way. Every second, every moment of your life. Incredible. And this is what he says about God. Sort of his summary statement saying, this is why he believes all this. That you, O God, are strong. You're omnipotent. You have all the power. You're stronger than... Anyone, anything, any combination of anyone's and anything's, you are strong. And that you, O oh Lord, are loving. Loving. A God who loves you more than your mother or father could ever love you, more than your boyfriend or girlfriend could ever begin to love you. He loved you so much that he gave his son to die for you. And thirdly, he says that you... Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. So he seems to be saying that my trust is exclusive in God because God is strong, loving, and fair. He's powerful, loving, and fair. Incredible, isn't it? All the power. God is love. And in his holiness, he can only be fair. He can't be any other way. You don't have to worry about if God doesn't treat you fair, he's going to treat you fair. Always. Always. And as I was studying this, it came to mind an incredible thing that God did in the midst of a youth group that I was privileged to be on a missions trip with. In fact, it was, it was just after that time in China. Uh, Russ and, and Dr. McCarthy and I were talking and together we're praying about whether he wanted us to come here to the Master's College and and the church that we were at had a very strong youth missions program. And, and after three years of completion of a very rigorous program, when they were a senior in high school, they would have opportunity to go on an overseas experience. Uh, and and th- we had been doing it for six years, and I'd kind of been involved in the design of that. And I'd never, been, I'd never taken time to go and evaluate, so they asked me this year to go and evaluate that. And, and my wife, Luetta, was with me, and Todd happened to be in that group. And so it was kind of a family thing almost, and about 30 of us all together. And we went to the island of St. Kitts in the Caribbean, a very little island where the chief thing people did there is, is work in the sugarcane fields. And most were black folks, and they worked and lived in these little houses, and they worked in these sugarcane fields, and they didn't have much. We saw a lot of people come to Christ. We did door-to-door evangelism, and we'd say, you know, we, we, we've come over 2,000 miles to tell you about Jesus. Boy, that really had an effect on, on these people that worked in the sugarcane fields all day, and many received Christ as Savior. But on about the next to the last day, we, we, had, we had heard that there was a leper colony on the other end of this island. And we decided, well, wouldn't that be a great place to take our young people? Let's take them to the leper colony, and let's, let's experience what's going on there. So we went to this leper colony. It was in an abandoned French fort from 17-something. All these run-down buildings, and, and there were only three people left. All the rest of the lepers had died off. And there were three elderly people, two women and a man. And we parked our van, we walked in, we walked through this broken-down area. We came up and we encountered three people sitting on a broken-down porch. And 
the t two ladies and a man. And we came up and we gathered around in a circle. We told them who we were and why we had come and got talking. Found out the two women were Christians and the man wasn't. And they were distorted. They, they had had leprosy for a long time. And I'm not going to describe for you what they looked like physically. Not only were they in abject poverty, but physically their bodies were just, just incredibly destroyed. Faces, everything, distorted, you know, just really bad. You know, extremities kind of gone and all that. But these two women had such a countenance. They wanted to sing hymns for us. They had such joy in the Lord, an incredible joy in the Lord. I mean, I have never met two more contented people in my life than these two old leper ladies. And yet, as they, as they talked and shared, and then we discovered that the man, his name was Joseph, was not a Christian. And the ladies talked about how they'd been praying for his salvation for more than 20 years. But God had not opened his heart yet, but they were still praying. And so when we ended that time, uh, we, we gathered around and we held hands in a circle to pray and to pray for Joseph, the leper that they had been praying for 20 years for. And we held hands and we prayed and we asked God to open his heart that day. And, and Joseph had, had told us that, that he had wanted to become a Christian for 20 years and he just couldn't do it. His words were, I just can't surrender. I know that that's God's truth, but I just can't do it. I want to, I wanted to, I wanted to. It was really sad. And so we prayed and then we left and we walked back to the vans. And the kids were getting in the vans and I just had no peace about it. And so they got in the vans and I went back over and I, uh, I walked back up. They were still on the porch. And I walked up and I, and I said, Joseph, I had the same experience like you. I've been raised in a Christian home. I don't know that he was, but he'd heard the truth a long time was my point. And I'd heard the truth, and, but I was afraid I'd lose my life. I didn't want to let go. I didn't want to surrender. I just didn't want to let go. And I, and, and I was age 28 before the Spirit of God enabled me, opening my heart to receive Christ as Savior. And we talked a little bit, and I kind of was trying to share with him, I know a little bit about how you feel. I said, but we've been praying for you here today, and these ladies have been praying for more than 20 years. Joseph, has God opened your heart today? Would you like to pray and receive Christ as your Savior? And he said, yes. And we prayed together. And the ladies began to weep. And I turned to them, and... And I said, now you've got a disciple. I said, do you? He said, Joseph, do you have a Bible? He said, I can't read. The disease is distorted. My eyes are gone. I can't read. I can see enough to walk around, but I can't read. I said, do you have electricity here? Yes. Do you have a tape recorder? No. I said, I'm going to send you a tape recorder and the New Testament on tape. And so we did that when we got back. But the story doesn't stop there. So I prayed again, left them, we get in the van, told the kids. Well, you can imagine what that do for these young people and their, their concept of God and what I hope it'll do for you today. That's the kind of a God we have, but the story doesn't end yet. It gets even better. <clears throat> Later that day, I got on an airplane, flew over to an, a nearby island where the Operation Mobilization uh, ship called the Dulos happened. Well, no, I think it was the other ship. I've been on both of them. The Lagos was in dock there, and I, I had an appointment to go and teach on that missionary ship. And the first night there, I still had the, this leper on my mind, and so I went to the captain of the ship, the director of the ship, and I told him the story. 
And um, I said, you know, I said, you guys aren't going to be around there anywhere. Right? This was a few hundred miles at another island in the Caribbean. And he said, well, yeah, we're going to be there in two weeks. I said, Joe, I said, would you mind sending some of your staff over and just follow up a little bit and minister with, with these three lepers and especially with Joseph and make sure he's getting a good start in the Lord? He said, I'll do what I can. I came back home and about two weeks later I get a letter from the captain of the ship. And he says, um, he says, I went myself on Easter. We happened to be there on Easter morning. And so I went and I took some others that could do music and we had... We had a, a service for Joseph and the, and the two ladies. And he said, he's getting along swell when the Lord really growing. And they're, they're, they were just so joyful. It was like, like being in heaven. Think about it. The Lord had moved an ocean liner in his timing for that leper. And on Easter morning. is that incredible? That's the kind of... It's the first time I've told the story without crying. I, don't, I hope I'm not getting callous or something. <laughs> Think about that. That is the kind of a God who has brought you here to be equipped in a special way to serve Him. He has chosen you to go and to bear fruit. Fruit that will last. That's why you're here. Our God is...